Invite our friends who are headed to Children's Church and Tyler Nursery to be dismissed at this time. This morning, I invite you to turn over to Psalm 68. And as you're turning there, I just want to issue a couple of thank yous. One this morning to uh, Mark Meredith for covering for TJ while he's out of town. Isn't it just a rich blessing here at Sylvania that we have so many talented people that can kind of cover for each other? It's just a, it's a great, it's a great thing. And, and by extension from that, a, a very special thank you to my, my dear friend Chad Barnes for preaching in my place last Sunday as our family ventured to the sunny shores of uh, Florida for a family vacation. Uh, Chad brought a great word from the Proverbs, and you guys were richly blessed by it, and so I'm appreciative for that. Also, the number of men uh, that God has gifted in this congregation to be able to stand up and open up God's word and to preach from God's word, it's... Um, it really is remarkable for the, for those of you, and I, I say this a lot and I mean it, and I absolutely don't want anybody to venture out to do the experiment to prove that I'm telling you the truth about this. But for those of you that like Sylvania is your place and it's been your place for a really long time and you're just not real sure about what does or doesn't go on at other churches, let me just tell you from a guy who has lots and lots of friends who are in ministry at other churches Most churches don't have 10, 15 guys that can stand up and preach God's word from the pulpit. They don't have eight, nine people that can step in and help lead a musical worship service and not miss a beat. Sylvania is richly blessed in the people that it has to be able to lead in corporate worship on Sundays. And you should thank God regularly that you are at a place that is like that, that you're at a place like that. I have friends of mine who are terrified to take a vacation that runs over a Sunday because they have no idea who would preach for them if they left. I have friends of mine that do music ministry in churches that are terrified to take a vacation over a Sunday because who's going to help lead the songs on a Sunday morning at the church that they're at. Sylvania is so blessed. And we shouldn't take that for granted. We shouldn't presume upon God's grace, the blessing that he's given us for the sort of thing that we have here. It's a great kindness that he's given us and we should be thankful for it. So I wanted to extend a thank you to those guys for filling in. So this morning, Psalm 68, um, uh, one of the longer Psalms that we've seen in a while, but it's, it's beautiful. For the choir director, a psalm of David, a song. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad, let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts whose name is the Lord, and exult before him. A father of the fatherless, a judge for the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God makes his home, uh, God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, The earth quaked, the heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it is parched. Your creatures settled in it. You provided in your goodness for the poor, O God. The Lord gives the command. The women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. Kings of armies flee, they flee. And she who remains at home will divide the spoil. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings uh, there, it was snowing in Zalman. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has, de- uh, God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. 
The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You've received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens, the God who is our salvation. Selah. God is to us a God of deliverances. And, and to God, the Lord belong. Uh, <clears throat> and to God, the Lord belong escapes from death. Surely God will shatter the head of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who goes on in his guilty deeds. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that your foot may shatter them in blood and the tongue of your dogs may have its portion from your enemies. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my king into the sanctuary. The singers went on, the musicians after them, in the midst of the maidens beating tambourines. Bless God in the congregations. Even the Lord, you who are of the fountain of Israel, there is Benjamin, the youngest, ruling them, the princes of Judah and their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Your God has commanded your strength. Show yourself strong, O God, who have acted on our behalf. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. Rebuke the beast and the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people, trampling underfoot the pieces of silver. He has scattered the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hand to God. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord Selah, to him who rides upon the highest heavens, which are from the ancient times. Behold, he speaks forth with his voice, a mighty voice, ascribe strength to God. His majesty is over Israel, and his strength is in the skies. O God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. The God of Israel himself gives strength and power to the people. Blessed be God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the psalm. Father, thank you for the richness that is in it. Father, may we see you to be a God of justice and a God of grace as laid out here. Father, may we learn of Christ today and may we adore him more, love him more, honor him more, worship him more and be conformed evermore into his image as is the promise of those who are in your new covenant. In Christ's name, amen. So this morning, great, great psalm. Great language, great poetry, great metaphors, great allegory. It's got everything in it. It's just fantastic. I would encourage you to go home and read back through it again later today. It's, it's exceptional. But there's three main things, even though there's a, a bit more length to the psalm. There's three main things that we want to see from this psalm. First, in verses 1 through 6, we want to see God's holy grace. God's holy grace. God is a God of grace. Okay, so even among quiet, non-charismatic, reformed Baptists, that is a wonderful moment to get slightly spiritually excited. Um, listen, you're, you're not here if God is not a God of grace. You're not in the sanctuary this morning. You, you're, you're not... None of, none of this is happening. The life that you enjoy in the covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ is non-existent. As it says in the New Testament, if the Lord Jesus Christ be not raised, which is the demonstration of the highest level that God is a God of grace, then we are still in our sins. We above all men are to be pitied. Because basically we have no real hope. We're trusting in something that's false and a lie, and there's really no hope in the world. Friends, I've explored the various avenues of other religions. I've explored the various avenues of pure materialism. The bottom of them all is hopelessness. Meaninglessness. But at the end of the Christian faith is hope. And why is there hope to be found there? Because God is a God of grace. 
That is the profound difference between Christianity and every other world system that exists, has ever existed or ever will exist, is that God is a God of grace. And notice how he demonstrates his grace here at the beginning of the psalm. God be gracious. Excuse me, I'm back at 76. Let God arise. Notice what he says. Let God arise. And let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him Flee before him as smoke is driven away, drive them away as wax melts before the fire. So let the wicked perish before God. You say, hey, well, time out, time out. That doesn't sound very gracious. That sounds very judgmental. How are we saying that God's a God of grace if he's driving his enemies away and the wicked are perishing and all that sort of thing? We're going to have an interactive pop quiz. Simple hand raising. I know it makes many of you uncomfortable. A handful of you came from Assemblies of God background. You're welcome. I'm letting you do this today. (laughs) Raise your hand if you know that you are wicked. Keep, Keep it up. Be proud of that. We were on spring break at the beach. I was a plethora of wickedness in the world. Keep it up. Keep your hand up. If you know that by God's grace, he will welcome you into his eternal rest. Wow, all the hands stayed up. You're wicked. Now this says that God drives away the wicked. They go up like smoke. They, they, they melt like wax. They're scattered. They have to flee before the Lord. So how is it that any of us would dare raise our hand and acknowledge that we are wicked and at the same time acknowledge that we get to enter into the eternal rest of God? Because God is gracious. That's why. Because the very next verse expounds for us that, yes, God scatters his enemies, but the righteous are glad in God's grace. Look at verse three. But let the righteous be glad. Why? He's going to get to why. Look at this. Let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts. Whose name is the Lord and exalts before him. You say, Philip, I, I, I'm still not seeing the grace. Notice the song of praise that they're singing to God. And notice how they identify God, lift up a song for him who does what? Rides through the deserts. Now remember, this is King David for the choir director writing a song for the nation of Israel during the first kingdom established after Saul is removed and David is placed in. They are have not yet built the temple that's coming. But they remember the stories of the sacrifices. That's still there. They still have the law of sacrifice that they follow. That's still there. There's a temporary place in which that takes place, just like it was in the time of Moses. That's still there. And so when David writes a lyric to the nation of Israel and he says to worship God, to praise God, to exalt in God, that the righteous are glad in God because he is the one who rides through the deserts. What does this mean to them? You are the people that God delivered from slavery in Egypt. You overthrew all of the false gods of Egypt with your great plagues. And through the Passover lamb, a a foreshadowing of the atonement sacrifice that would come later, you covered your people with blood so that they would not die. Instead, they would get to go free. And you rode with them through the wandering of the wilderness in the desert, in a dry and weary land where there was no food or water, and you carried them into this land of plenty as a demonstration of your covenantal goodness toward them because you are a God of grace. And what is it that it says in the book of Deuteronomy as to why God did that? Israel, I have not delivered you because of your greatness. I have not delivered you because of your righteousness. 
I have not delivered you because of the number of your people, because you're the smallest among all the nations. I have delivered you that my name might be great in all of the earth. It is purely and solely because of God's grace that anyone in David's camp can actually think for a moment that they are righteous and not included among the wicked that will be driven away. Why? Because God and his sovereignty chose to compassionately ride through the desert with those He's a God of grace. And he demonstrates his compassion on the lowly. Look at what it says when we get to verse 5 and 6. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows. It's beautiful. God is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home... Hear hear me this morning. Hear me this morning. God makes a home for the lonely. An an even more active way to translate that is, is God makes the lonely to dwell with him in his house. I, I had I had not intended on this, but I want to I want to pause here. What, a study I saw recently, when it asked people about psychological and emotional well being and, and what what ailed them the most, the thing way up toward the top of the list was loneliness. People just feel like they're alone. Even if they have a lot of people around them, there's a, a, a fairly popular song that's played on the radio. You won't, you won't catch it on KVE. I'm showing the fact that occasionally I do listen to things not that aren't the well or KVE. Please listen to those stations; they're wonderful. Um, but there's a lyric in a song that came out just a few years ago, and the artist said, "All I see are lonely people in crowded rooms." That's profound. And what is it that God does in his compassion and his grace? He makes a home for the lonely. If you're in Christ, you're never actually alone. Nor are you ever truly lonely. Sorry, that's an aside. I just feel like somebody might need to have heard that this morning. And he leads the prisoners into prosperity. The fatherless, the widow, the lonely, the prisoner, God has compassion on them. Now, we could talk about that in the real physical sense, or we could also engage that in the psychological, emotional, and spiritual sense, and the application would still be the same. God has great compassion on those who find themselves in a lowly estate. But then notice the judgment that falls. It's bookended by judgment. Only... The rebellious dwell in a parched land. I had strongly contemplated making a joke about California, but thought better of it. (laughs) Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. There's a promise in the Old Covenant about the land. And the promise is, is that if you abide in God's covenant, that he will bless the land space that he's going to give to you and it will have great produce and uh, the the livestock will be able to live and thrive and that the water will flow. But that if you violate the covenant of God, uh, enemies will come and occupy the land and the the livestock won't live and your harvest won't increase and, and you'll have all of these problems. And so there's this concept of this rebellion bringing about these things. But God is a God of grace, because friends, if we're honest, if we're honest, metaphorically speaking, if we're honest, the land of our lives should constantly be parched. When I think through what my life 
would likely be like without the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I'm being very honest, what my life often is like anyway, in spite of the fact that I have the Lord Jesus Christ. My life should be dry and parched and rough and hard and empty and draining and lifeless. Like there, there just should be so much about it that is, that is just empty. And that's what I deserve. Because with you, I rose my hand at the notion of am I wicked? Yes. Yes, I am. But what has God done for me in Christ? He has declared me righteous. And he's taken this parched, dry life and he's filled it with his blessings. Not because I deserve it, not because I've earned it, but because he is a God of grace. And friend, I want to tell you this morning, I'm not a health, wealth, prosperity guy, but I want to tell you this morning. If when you evaluate your life and the conclusion that you come to is that it's empty and it's dry and it's meaningless and it's hopeless. I'm concerned that that which gives meaning and hope to your life may not be there. Because those who are truly in Christ, there's always a glimmer. Even if it's faint of the peace and the joy and the hope that is found only in the Lord because God's a God of grace. And then notice what David does after declaring the great glorious grace of God. He talks about God's mountain of victory. Verses 7 through 18, he shifts to this mountain scene. O God, you went forth before your people, verse 7. When you march through the wilderness, he's back to that again, this one who rides through the deserts. And what happened while they were there? This is kind of a, 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 an odd, comprehensive retelling of the events of the giving of the law and a, and a variety of other things that happened during that time. And also some battles that took place later on. And, and it's just a, a sweeping poetic notion of a lot of God's victorious reality in the Old Testament. And you see it when you read through it. The earth quaked, the heavens dropped rain, Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, plentiful rain. You confirmed your inheritance even when it was parched. Creatures settled in it. There was goodness for the poor. The Lord gave a command and the women proclaimed the good tidings. Uh, kings of armies fled away. Those who stayed home and didn't even fight were able to divide the spoil. You, were, you lied down with the sheepfold. You were like a, a, a dove covered in silver, covering them. You scattered kings even during the seasons when war wouldn't normally take place. And then he moves into this conversation about how in that section it was God marching before his people and God blessing the land. And then he moves into the section in 15 through 18 about the the mountain of God, God's mountain. A, A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. Now, of course, this can be translated other ways. It could just be that Bashan is a mighty mountain of God. But it's very indefinite. It doesn't say that, that Bashan is the mountain of God. It's one of God's mighty mountains. It is a mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. If you go and look at the geography, you'll see all of that. We're not going to do geography lesson this morning. But then notice what it says. It talks about this mighty mountain. One of the mighty mountains of God is Bashan. And Bashan has many peaks. And then notice what happens in verse 16. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks? Talking about the Bashan range. At the mountain which God has desired for his abode. And then in a minute it's going to talk about, and it's been talking about Sinai. And it'll talk about Sinai again in verse 17. So it's talking about God's great mountain of victory. And it goes on about Bashan and being a mighty mountain and many ranges. But then it throws into question this many-ranged mountain range looking at the true mountain of God with envy because God dwells there. So what, what is God's mountain? 
You say, Philip, why does this matter? It matters because it creates a great deal of confusion in people and the hope they have for the future. What is God's mountain? Well, it's not Bashan because Bashan in the same text is envious of God's one true mountain. It's, yes, it's a mighty mountain of God. And yes, it's a splendid place. And yes, it has many great peaks. But it's envious of God's dwelling place. And if you were to go and have that geography lesson that we said we weren't going to have, you will find that on a map, Bashan is not in the land of promise. It's not in the actual borders of the old covenant reality of what we would dub the promised land. And then he moves on to Sinai. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. Friends, it doesn't take long going through both the old and especially the New Testament to know that Sinai is not God's holy mountain. In fact, Sinai is the mountain that will crush you if you try to climb to the top of it to reach God. Sinai is the mountain of God's law, which indeed is a demonstration of God's holiness because God's law is holy. The problem is, is that God's law is a law of works, not a law of, uh, not a law of grace. The law is a law of doing and performing. And you cannot do and perform to the level of holiness that God can do and perform. Why is God's law holy? Because God can and does perfectly keep all of the aspects of his own law. God does not break his own law. God is the only being in existence after the fall of mankind, capable of keeping the law that he has made. He's the only one who can do works of holiness. Friends, we cannot do works of holiness. Why? Because we all raised our hands together, acknowledging that we are wicked. Wicked things cannot produce that which is holy. It was a grand setup, by the way, earlier, to get all of you to agree with the doctrine of total depravity. We cannot produce that which is good. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Can't do it. So Sinai is a mountain of God, but it is not the mountain of God. It is not a mountain of God's grace. It's not a demonstration. Sinai, yes, had God's presence, but it was not God's permanent presence. It was God's terrifying presence. It was the presence of God's holy law. It was a demonstration to the people. This is what it takes for you to walk rightly with God. And friends, you don't have to read very far into the law to recognize you cannot Work your way to walking holy with God cannot be done. It's a terrifying mountain. And of course, Paul speaks of it in Galatians in a metaphorical sense. And it's a mountain that will kill you, friends. An attempt to maintain the law of God for your salvation will ultimately lead to your ruin. It's not the mountain of God's grace. Now, some might want to venture outside of this text and say, well, maybe it's the Temple Mount. It's the mountain where the temple was. It's Mount Moriah there where the, uh, the certain Hebrew people declare was the site of all creation and therefore the holy establishment of the temple and possibly a reestablishment of a temple one day when Jesus comes back and sits there for a thousand years with people in glorified bodies living next door to people in unglorified bodies for some reason reinstituting animal sacrifices inside of a temple that are completely worthless because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Not real sure why he would do that. I know I'm being petty. Sorry. It's not Mount Moriah. What is the mountain of God? Metaphorically, though not listed here in our text, it is Zion. Zion is the mountain of of God. You say, well, where is that exactly? Do you know if you go do a deep dive study on the notion of Mount Zion, you come up with a whole bunch of different answers as to what mountain that is. There's not agreement about what Mount Zion actually is, which one it is. There's some stronger theories than others, but there's no real solid consensus on this mountain is definitely Mount Zion. So isn't it where the temple was? No, that's Mount Moriah. Maybe metaphorically made known to be Mount Zion, the head of Jerusalem that David makes reference to in many of his psalms. 
Mount Zion is a great metaphor in the scripture of God's eternal, salvific, victorious, grace-filled throne. Mount Zion is the presence of God. I would venture to extend the metaphor to the most extreme point that you could extend it to. And I would dare say that Jesus is Mount Zion. There is a mountain that all of the mountains of God are envious of because it is where God dwells forever in victory on his throne. That sounds like the presence of Jesus to me. You say, Philip, why does this matter? Well, first off, there's literally 12 verses in the middle of this 35-verse psalm that talk about the mighty mountains of God and God's salvific dwelling place upon some unnamed mountain somewhere that's not Sinai and not Bashan and not any of the other mountains that you might want to think name. So we got to at least talk about it a little bit. But more importantly, your hope for the present time and for the future Because that's how Christians hope. We hope that today I will look like Jesus. That's my hope. And I hope that one day out there somewhere, when all things reach their glorious end in Christ, I will look all the way like Jesus. Already not yet. I already want to look like Jesus. But I don't look like Jesus all the way that I should just yet. And I'm hoping that one day the little signs of looking more like Jesus that I see now will be actualized and realized and reach their full potential. And I won't struggle with sin and I won't have this rebellious spirit and I won't have this internal warfare. But all things will be made new and I'll be fully conformed to the image of Christ. I'll be seated in heavenly places with Christ. I will be a partaker and a share of his righteousness and his glory and his crown of life and majesty. And his name will be my name and God will love me the way that he loves his son Jesus. Like that's what I'm hoping for one day in the future. And how do you think that that hope will come about? Well, you know, that the, 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 the winged scorpion things are helicopters. And, no, please stop, stop, just stop. And, you know, we've got to break out a big chart and there's got to be this really cool timetable on it and there's got to be... Stop. You're making it way too hard. Jesus has already won the victory. He's not waiting to be king. He already is the king seated on his throne in victory right now already. You have hope because the battle has already been won for you. And we're so hesitant to amen that. Because when we look at our lives day by day, we don't feel like the battle's won. So so surely the end of everything's got to be different from that. Because my current reality doesn't line up with that. It still feels really hard right now. I still feel wicked, even though I know I've been made righteous. I still battle with my sin. I still feel like the description in verses 5 and 6. I feel fatherless and I feel... Um, uh, like a widow and I feel lonely and I feel like I'm in a rebellious parched land and I feel like a prisoner. This is how I feel and I, I wage war with my sin and more times than not, I am not victorious over it. How can Jesus be the victorious king if I'm still losing all of these battles? And that's the great question of the Christian life. And friends, let me tell you, And this is so hard for us to embrace as believers. Friends, you cannot climb Mount Sinai to be saved. We already talked about that. And I think this is why we're talking about these mountains in the middle is this right here. You can't climb Mount Sinai to be saved. You can't keep the law of God to attain salvation. And you cannot climb Mount Sinai to be made righteous after you are saved. You don't come over here by grace, through faith, become 
a new covenant member of Christ. And then say, hey, Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, Trinity, thanks for the grace. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Now, you guys just hang here and watch me climb this mountain and make myself holy. That is not how sanctification works. And so many Christians feel as if they're failing in their spiritual lives because they've stuck the mountain of Sinai in front of them as their effort to measure how much God cares about them, how much God loves them, and how holy they are. But friends, here's the deal. Mount Sinai will only and always tell you that you are not holy. That's all it's there for. All the law of God is there for is to tell you that you are a lawbreaker. And if you go to the mountain of Sinai to try to find your comfort, you will be sorely disappointed. No, you turn to Jesus Christ himself, Mount Zion, and you hear him affirm, you are my child. But you don't, I know all about it. But that thing, I know all about it. But but you see what I, I know all about it. He holds those pierced wrists out in front of you. And he says, I know all about it. And I love you anyway. And I saved you anyway. And I have forgiven you as far as the east is from the west Anyway, and I've clothed you in my righteousness anyway, and I've crowned you with my glory anyway, and I have placed you on a heavenly throne with me anyway, and I've invited you to my heavenly banquet anyway, and you are my blessed child in whom I am well pleased, and you are a love offering that I'm giving back to the Father because of the death and resurrection that I have attained because I am a God of grace. I don't care about your works. All your works will ever do is condemn you. I, in my grace, have saved you. And friends, if you want to walk in sanctification, if you want to walk in holiness, it is not the effort that you put in trying to make yourself look better to Christ. Instead, it's yielding to the fact that Christ has already said you are holy. Just live the way you actually are. Quit trying to be something Live as the thing you have become. You're not trying to make yourself holy. That's what Sinai does. Zion declares you holy. And then shows you a grace-filled way to live it out. And so many of us feel this horrible pressure. I've got to get my checklist out. And I've got to, did I do this? Did I not do that? Did I say this the right way? Did I not say this? Did I... Oh man, I'm I'm really trying, and you're failing, friends. God's mighty mountain is Mount Zion, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, and He saves you fully and completely. He's not making you holy; He has made you holy, and you don't have to go get crushed under Mount Sinai anymore. Instead, you can live on top of Mount Zion, seated in heavenly places on a throne with Jesus Christ himself, robed in his righteousness, feasting at his banquet table, wearing a crown of glory and life, sharing the name of Jesus Christ himself, being loved by the Father with the love with which he loves the Son. That's good stuff, man. Because God is a God of grace. And that's what grace does. Grace does all of that. And then when we close verses 19 through 35, we see that God is the great deliverer and worthy of praise. We're not going to run back through every single one of these verses. But this beautiful, beautiful. And I want to just touch on, because it's important. I want to touch on verse 19. And I want to touch on verses 32 through 35 to to kind of encapsulate everything that's happening 
everything that's happening. Now, before we look at 19 and before we look at 32 through 35, I have to at least for two seconds just remind you of how awesome verse 23 is. If you ever are into trash talking, somebody please break this one out on the basketball court the next time you have a pickup game. That your foot may shatter them in blood and the tongue of your dogs may have its portion from your enemy. That's some trash talk right there. God is going to so thoroughly destroy his enemies that his dogs get to finish them off. Like, that's just incredible. Sorry, just had to throw that out there. I mean, when I'm reading through it, every once in a while, South Memphis just jumps up on me. I can't escape my upbringing. And I'm like, ooh, man, that would have played well out on the parks out at the East Precinct. Anyway, so, verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. Man. I don't know how many of you commit yourself to memorizing scripture. I don't know how many of you write yourself little scripture notes as reminders. I don't know how many of you mark your Bible. But whatever you need to do to implant verse 19 deeply into your soul, not just your brain. Deeply blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden. The God who is our salvation. Do you feel burdened every day by something? God is bearing it for you every day. Every day. Why? Because he is the God who is our Salvation. He's a God of grace. Our God of grace does not take a day off. You go to sleep with burdens. You wake up with burdens. You're in continuing warfare with your dying old self is a burden. You live in a broken world that hasn't been fully redeemed and it's a burden. You struggle to live in existence with other broken sinful people and it's a burden. And God himself Daily bears our burdens. And he he doesn't have to. Remember that when you presume upon the grace of God, God could have left you as you were. He could have left me, he could have left you in your sin. He could have left you as those that are being driven out, who are being melted like wax, that are being pushed away like the smoke. He could have left you in that parched and weary and dry land. He could have left you in that oppressive state of rebellion against the Most High God. But instead, but God, being rich in mercy, with the great love with which He loved us in Christ Jesus, has drawn us near to Himself. He has given us His grace. He has forgiven us of our sins. He has welcomed us into His kingdom and to His family. And He has marked His name on us. And He has declared that we are His. And in doing so, has taken on His almighty self the gracious gift of daily bearing our burdens. <laughs> he is our salvation. God is to us a God of deliverances, which, by the way, is the very next verse in verse 20. And we see this alternation in these verses of God's judgment and God's salvation moving back and forth. But mostly there's a declaration of the praise of God for his blessing. Then we get to 32. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. This message is for all of mankind. Sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides upon the highest heavens, which are from ancient times. Behold, he speaks forth with his voice, a mighty voice. 
ascribe strength to God. His majesty is over Israel. His strength is in the skies. And then listen to this in verse 35. Listen to this. Oh God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. There's no other way to describe a God with this kind of grace. A God that doesn't mandate that we work and earn his love, that we don't change things about ourselves, that we don't try to overcome obstacles that we can't overcome. Who overcomes the obstacles for us and transforms us from the inside out into a change through himself could elicit on ourselves. The God of Israel himself gives strength. Now listen to, listen to this. This is what God does for us in his grace. The God of Israel himself gives strength and power to the people. Man, Philip, you just don't know the struggle that I have with this sin. I just, I just don't think that I can overcome it. And people get, people get a little frustrated with me from time to time. Uh, I just happened to catch Chad Barnes' eye on this because he sat in on a whole lot of these. And he even told me one time, he said, man, I love sitting in the counseling sessions with you, not because I feel like I can help, but just because I want to hear what crazy thing you're going to say to somebody. People get a little sideways with me sometimes in my counseling sessions. Philip, man, this sin that I'm struggling with, man, I'm just having a heart. I just don't know that. I just don't think I can overcome it. And I'll usually follow up with it. You're right. You can't. Philip, that's not how you're supposed to do it. Absolutely, that's how you're supposed to do it. If you're coming at your sin, trying to figure out how you can overcome it, you won't. Because you can't overcome sin. Because you are the problem. You are the sinner. You know who can overcome it? The one who bears all of our burdens. And do you know what he has done in his strength for his people? He has is, he is given to us strength and power is what it says. Not so that I can do a bunch of stuff but that he can do a bunch of stuff through me and I can then turn back to him and give him all the glory for what he has done in my life. If I could overcome and if I could do all the stuff in my own power and strength, I wouldn't give any glory to God for it. But when Christians become truly victorious in their lives is when they acknowledge their absolute state of helplessness all the time. I can't do any of this. I can't do any of this. But God in Christ, by way of the Spirit in me, can do great and mighty things. Of which I just turn to him and say, what? What does David declare at then? What do I say? Blessed be God. Friends, I want to close with this. If our God is a God of grace, and if we are people of grace, people who have been touched by the grace of God, in the definition of grace, grace is unmerited favor. Some of you know the rest of the lyric. You can fill it in later. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is something I do not deserve. Grace is something that I cannot earn. Grace is a free gift of God. If God is a God of grace and if I am a recipient of grace, what then does that cause people who are people of grace to become worshipers? Thank you, God that you have done this for me in my life. And we become that in every part of our lives, not just the moment that we remember when we were saved, but however long ago that was. Not just when we recall our baptism as we saw the water stirred this morning. But we become people who are worshipers of God for everything. Thank you, God, that today, 
I was able to stand and still walk. Thank you, God, today that I was able to go and do work and care for my family through the resources you supplied from that work that God supplied. I didn't really earn it. God supplied it. Because, friends, in case you haven't been watching the news and don't know your world history, there's tons of people all over the earth that put in a really good hard day's work. They'll earn a thing. God is the one who supplies. It's his grace. It's his compassion. God, you've given me this family. God, you've given me this spouse. God, you've given me these children. God, you've given me this education. God, you've given me this access to materials and information. You've given me this church and you've given me these people that help hold me accountable. You've given me the ability to sing and to praise and to worship and a copy of your word that I might know who you are. God, you have overwhelmingly poured out blessing on my head. Blessed be God. That's the response of people who've been touched by grace. That's the response of people who are not being crushed by Mount Sinai, but instead have, by God's grace, found themselves on top of Mount Zion. Guess what? You didn't climb to the top of Mount Zion. Somebody carried you up there and placed you on top of Mount Zion. Blessed be God. And friends, we're going to do that. I'm going to pray and we're going to stand up and we're going to sing. We're going to sing praise and we're going to bless God. But when you wake up in the morning and it's Monday and it's whatever your Monday looks like, do you know what your heart cry is supposed to be? Blessed be God. And when you go to that doctor's appointment and they share with you news you didn't want to hear, that's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, and it's going to be trying. Do you know what your response is? Blessed be God. And when that jerk who's immoral and corrupt and wicked as the day is long, who doesn't care one thing about God's glory, gets pa- you get passed over by him for the promotion at work, for that thing that you should have gotten, that you, you were striving diligently for, and you were walking the right way to try to get, and you weren't cutting the corners, you weren't cheating, you weren't stepping on people to get up to the top of that corporate ladder, and you get bypassed again because your righteousness is keeping you from getting ahead in this wicked world. Do you know what your response is? Blessed be God, when you're standing in line at the grocery store and you have enough money to actually buy food so that you can have something to eat, do you know what your response is? Blessed be God. People who are touched by grace are people who worship. Their whole lives are acts of worship. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for Mount Zion, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we cannot attain to the top of it, that we can't climb to its peak, to its pinnacle, to its summit. But instead, by your grace and for your glory, you have placed us on the mountain that is Jesus. We share a throne with him. We are seated with him. We share a crown of glory with him. We're robed in his righteousness. We're being conformed to his image. His name has been placed on us. The love that you have for him is the love that you have for us. And it is all because of your grace and nothing, nothing to do with our works and our merit. Father, let our heart cry, be blessed, be God. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response together.